Now Joseph had been brought down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, an Egyptian, had bought him from the Ishmaelites who had brought him down there. The Lord was with Joseph, and he became a successful man, and he was in the house of his Egyptian master. His master saw that the Lord was with him, and that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. So Joseph found favor in his sight and attended him, and he made him overseer of his house and put put him in charge of all that he had. From the time that he had made him overseer in his house and over all that he had, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. The blessing of the Lord was on on all that he had in house and field. So he left all that he had in Joseph's charge, and because of him, he had no concern about anything about the food but the food that he ate. Now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance, and after a time his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, Lie with me. But he refused to and said to his master's wife, Behold, because of, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house, and he has put everything that he has in my charge. He is not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except you, because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? And as she spoke to Joseph day after day, he would not listen to her, to lie beside her or to be with her. But one day when he went into the house to do his work, and, and none of the men of the house was there in the house, she caught him by his garment, saying, Lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and fled and got out of the house. And as soon as she saw that he had left his garment in her hand and had fled out of the house, she called to the men of her household and said to them, See, he has brought among us a Hebrew to laugh at us. He came, into, he came into me to lie with me, and I cried out with a loud voice. And as soon as he heard that I lifted up my voice and cried out, he left his garment beside me and fled and got out of the house. Then she laid up his garment by, by her until his master came home. And she told him the same story, saying, The Hebrew servant, whom you have brought among us, came in to me to laugh at me. But as soon as I lifted up my voice and cried, he left his garment beside me and fled out of the house." As soon as his master heard the words that his wife spoke to him, this is the way your servant treated me, his anger was kindled. And Joseph's master took him and put him into prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined, and he was there in prison. But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were in the prison. Whatever was done there, he was the one who did it. The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him, and whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. So I was uh, talking to one of our children uh, this week, and uh, I, I did something to my back about two weeks ago, and it's just been progressively getting worse and worse. And uh, so one of the children was at our house this week and saw me you know, you know, almost have to just fall down because I had one of those spasms. And she looks at me with all sincerity, and she says, "So is this what happens when you get old?" And uh, yeah, thanks for that. And uh, I said, "I'm old, and I know how to wash mouths out with soap." So, uh, <laughs> all right. Well, um, so I'm going to sit this morning. Uh, apologize, but uh, that helps a little bit. Uh, and uh, we'll go from there. So in 17th century, there was a playwright by the name of William Congreve. So William Congreve, you know a couple of his lines, right? The first one is that music has the charms to soothe the wild beast, right? That's shown up in books and a movie 
the most famous of which was beauty and the beast, right? That concept is there. But it's this other line that you are probably more familiar with and seems like at first glance to be particularly applicable to Genesis uh, chapter 39. Here it is. Heaven has no rage like love to hatred turned, nor hell hath a fury like a woman yeah, you got it, scorn, right? Hell hath no fury like a woman scorned. You can see how that might apply to Genesis 39. We, we, a couple of weeks ago, we turned our attention to the most written about person in the book of Genesis. That's Joseph. And when we began these few sermons here about Joseph, which is entitled God at Work, we looked a couple of weeks ago at chapter 37. And what was interesting about chapter 37 is that God is not mentioned anywhere in that entire chapter, yet God is everywhere in that chapter. He's in the shadows moving and directing Joseph's life. In that chapter, we saw how Joseph was hated by his brothers, how they sold him to slavers, and, and then went to their father Jacob, and they lied to him and said that that Joseph had been devoured by wild beasts. Well, those slave traders, they took Joseph to Egypt, which is where we pick up in verse 1 of chapter 39. They take him to Egypt, and they, they sell him into slavery. He was purchased by a man whose name was Potiphar. Potiphar served in Pharaoh's court. He was like the, the captain of a, a special military unit and, and uh, charged with protecting the Pharaoh and taking out the Pharaoh's enemies. Uh, many refer to him as the chief executioner. In other words, if you got on the bad side of Pharaoh, it was Potiphar who came for a visit in the middle of the night, right? That's who this guy was. And so you can imagine for Joseph what a shock this had to be for him, right? He, he's now gone from being the favored son of a, of a chieftain in Palestine to a common slave in a civilization that is renowned, renowned for, their, for their cruelty to slaves. So this morning, we turn to chapter 39. And it's a, a well-known story in the Bible. But trust me when I say that God has not given us Genesis 39 as a proof text for that idea that hell hath no fury like a woman scorned. As true as that may be, right? <laughs> um, that's not the purpose of Genesis 39. There's much more going on here. I would suggest that in Genesis chapter 39, what we have is a young man who experiences the presence and the power and the, uh, the, the greatness of God because regardless of his circumstances, he walks by faith. He trusts in God and he lives by faith even in the most difficult of circumstances. And in doing this, he's showing all of us who worship the Lord Jesus Christ what it means and what we can expect when we live by faith, which has been our, our annual theme uh, this last year. We're going to be in this for a couple of more weeks. We'll finish out actually Genesis next week. And then we're going to shift our attention to a summer series called Wonderful Words. Again, stressing what does it mean to have a, a foundation of biblical faith. And so over the summer, we're going to do a deep dive into some particular words that you're going to see in the scriptures and in words that you need to know and you need to understand and be able to apply in your Christian walk in order to mature and grow up in Jesus Christ. But this morning, we want to look at this passage. 
And I think as we do, we see several important gospel applications for all of us. First of which is this, regardless of our circumstances, God is with us working out his divine plan for our lives. You know, if you think about what Joseph went through, most people, I think most of us even, if we had to endure what he endured, we probably would not have thrived like he did. I mean, it's pretty remarkable. Here's this young man, right? As I mentioned a moment ago, he's the favored son of his father, Jacob. He has a, a, a future that's secure, that's wealthy, that's taken care of, but he's betrayed by his brothers. He's sold to slavers who then put him in shackles and take him to Egypt where he is then sold to Pharaoh's chief executioner. He is Potiphar's slave for 11 years. He starts out in all likelihood just like a, a common slave. He doesn't know the language. He doesn't have anything especially to commend himself to Potiphar. But, but over time, uh, he rose to the top. He learned the language. He learned the culture. He was a hard worker. And so Potiphar notices this and begins to give him more responsibility until finally he becomes Potiphar's steward. He's, he's in charge of all of Potiphar's estate, all of his financial accounts, the, the business activities, and all the other slaves. Everything in Potiphar's house is at his disposal except for Potiphar's wife. If you wonder what that verse means about, you know, everything that Potiphar ate by himself, that's a euphemism for uh, Joseph could have full run of the house except for Potiphar's wife, okay? So this is an extremely trusted position. He's, he's come from high to low, and now for all, you know, the best that you could expect as a slave, he's got it. And then he's accused of rape. What a horrendous crime, right? And he's falsely accused, and then he's imprisoned because of this. And as you see, he doesn't get executed. Instead, over time, the opportunity arises for him to interact with Pharaoh, which leads him to ultimately the second most powerful position in the Egyptian empire, which is the dominant empire of that era of time in the world. How does all that happen? How does he go from that position of height to depredation to height to depredation and then height again? How does that happen? Is it because he's, you know, basically he's like mastered Dale Carnegie's, you know, how to win friends and influence people? Is it because he's just that talented? You know, he's that gifted that no matter where he's at, he's able to schmooze and, and network and rise to the top? Not at all. The answer lies in that little phrase that bookends this entire story. You first see it in verse 2. The Lord was with Joseph. Underline that past, that phrase. That's important. The Lord was with Joseph, and he became a successful man, and he's in the house of his Egyptian master. His master saw that the Lord was with him, and that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. At the end of the passage, you run into this phrase again. You know, he's been falsely accused. He's being put in prison, and we read this, verse 20. Joseph's master took him, put him into prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined, and he was there in prison, but the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. Joseph was successful 
even in difficult circumstances, not because of all of his talent and his skills and abilities, though he, he had some of those things. He was successful, simply put, because God was with him. His fortunes, his conditions, they were ever-changing. They were uncertain at times. They were extremely chaotic, but there was one constant in his life, God. God was with him even when everything else was going south. As a slave for 11 years in Potiphar's house, God had never abandoned him. In actuality, he was working through Joseph's life during that entire period of time, right? We know that he was sovereign in this. Now, do you think Joseph was aware of this at all times? You know, when he was in the pit that his brothers threw him into, we see later from their own testimony that while he was there, he was not singing a praise of him to God saying, how glorious it is that I've been thrown in this pit and betrayed by my brothers. I mean, they say he cried and he wept and he pled with them to deliver him and not to do this to him. So there were certainly times, I think, where Joseph maybe felt that God had abandoned him. Where was God? I mean, if you went through that, wouldn't you at some point say, why? What are you doing? I don't understand. Where are you, God? I know if I'm in the pit about to be sold to a slaver, that's the first question on my lips, right? And later, as he goes through 11 years of slavery to Potiphar, he's, he's got to, to wonder, what is God up to, right? All through this period of time. But in time, I think Joseph realized something, something that we all have to realize and embrace. He, he understands that his actual owner, his actual master is not Potiphar. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. It's God he realizes that who he's serving is the creator of the universe. And this changes how he interacts, even with Potiphar as a slave. And so as you read the remaining chapters of this story, what's interesting is how often Joseph points to God's presence, his power, how he believes that God is there and going to work in the way that he needs to work. So for example, in a few chapters later, when he is brought to Potiphar to interpret a dream, or excuse me, to, to, to Pharaoh to interpret a dream, Pharaoh asks him, are you able to interpret this? I hear that you are you know, like a seer who can make sense of dreams. And Joseph doesn't claim the credit. Joseph doesn't say to Pharaoh and take the opportunity to build himself up and say, yes, you've heard right. In fact, I'm thinking about opening a dream interpretation business and I will now demonstrate to you my powers. No, not at all. What does he do? He points to God. He says, it is not in me, Pharaoh. God will give you the favorable answer. And you see this even later when his brothers come to him, as we'll see next week, he'll say, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. So throughout his life, he's extremely aware of God's sovereign lordship over his life. And church, when we recognize and we embrace this truth, that God is sovereign over everything, that he is sovereign and Lord of our lives and everything that we experience fits within his overall plan somehow, even when we don't understand it. When we embrace that and believe that, it's amazing how we will then become more aware of his sustaining power 
and his presence in our lives, whether it's a time of great prosperity or extreme adversity. This core truth about God, once it's understood and embraced, changes how we relate to our world and to the circumstances that we experience. This is what happened, I believe, for Joseph. You know, in our culture today, we are bombarded by a lot of lies, and some of these lies come out of uh, groups that pretend to be Christian. So, for example, one of the many great lies of the prosperity gospel is that it, it equates material blessings with the presence and the favor of God. In other words, if, if you are living right and you are believing right and you are walking by faith, you will know that God is present and involved in your life because you will become wealthy and prosperous and healthy and your life will be good. Conversely, if you're having a difficult time, you know, paying your bills or you're going through trials and tribulations and facing, you know, adversity, this is evidence that in some way you need to repent and get right with God and you demonstrate this by writing a check to the ministry, okay? And when you do that, God will once again show up in your life and then you will be blessed and prosperous. Joseph's story shows this for the lie that it is, right? I mean, he's high with his dad, high position, low as a slave, high as a steward, low as an accused rapist in prison facing potentially death, high as the second most powerful person in Egypt. That is the trajectory of his entire life. And yet it is clear God is with him in all of those stages directing his steps, blessing him in ways that may not be obvious at first, and sustaining him as he prepares him for the next role that he intends for him to fill within the kingdom of God. So adversities and tribulations in Joseph's life were not signs of his personal disobedience. They were not signs of God's punishment and anger towards him. They were not proof that God had withdrawn his presence and his blessings. Far from it, the adversity was yet just another opportunity for, jo uh, for Joseph to become familiar and appreciate the presence and the power of God in his life. So whether it was in prosperity or adversity, Joseph thrived. How could this happen? Because for many of us, let's face it, when adversity comes, many of us don't thrive. Uh, we, we may tend to, to grow cynical or doubtful or depressed and discouraged and, you know, have a pity party and turn our backs even for a while on God. Or, or others of us, it's not adversity. Adversity actually drives us to the throne of God. It's prosperity. The opposite end of the spectrum causes us to, to no longer walk with God, to sense his presence and to rely upon his power. Why is this? Why do we have difficulty walking by faith in these types of situations? Well, in the last century, Oswald Chambers wrote something that I think is pertinent. He said, faith is deliberate confidence in the character of God whose ways you may not understand at the time. 
Faith is deliberate confidence in the character of God whose ways you may not understand at the time. So some of you right now, as I look across the church, I know what's going on in your life, and you are in a period of adversity. Others of you have just recently come through a time of tribulation and adversity and trial, and then still others, you know, we're enjoying a period of maybe calm and blessing and even prosperity in our lives, and we're thankful for this, right? So the question is, regardless of the extremes, are you living and thriving and sensing God's presence in your life, whether you're in adversity or prosperity right now? Do you sense that presence? Is that relationship with God real and tangible and sustaining you through this period of your life? If not, what's going on? Right? That's the question. What's going on? I mean, Job goes through the worst circumstances, and, and he says, though he slay me, yet will I trust and hope in him. Is that, is that your testimony? I know there's been periods of time in my own life when I've gone through adversity and tribulation, and my testimony was not the testimony of faith that Job mentions at all. It was anger. It was disillusionment. It was disappointment, discouragement. And rather than thriving during that adversity, I wilted. And the adversity showed that my faith was built on a shaky foundation. And I'm thankful for that, that God revealed what was going on. But I can tell you, Oswald Chambers' statement is correct. Why was it shaky? Because there was a lack of confidence in the character of God. I was not trusting in the character of God. I didn't have confidence in the character of God. So if this morning, if you aren't thriving and sensing the presence of God, ask yourself this question, what aspect of God's character do I doubt? Because the answer to that question is what is hindering you from walking and living by faith, okay? When we live by faith, we can be confident that regardless of our circumstances, God is with us and he's working out his divine plan for our lives. Second application, God will bless others and glorify himself through the person who lives by faith. Verse three says, his master saw that the Lord was with him, that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. So Joseph found favor in his sight and attended him, and he made him overseer of his house and put him in charge of all that he had. From the time that he made him overseer in his house and over all that he had, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. The blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in house and field. You know, we see something similar to this earlier in Genesis with uh, Joseph's daddy, Jacob. Remember after the 14 years that he served with Laban? He's ready to leave and go home, and Laban comes to him and says, please don't leave. Let's go into business together. And for six years, they go into business together. And the reason that Laban gives him is, I have discerned that the reason why I have prospered and become wealthy over the last 14 years is because God has blessed me through you, Jacob, so please don't leave. <laughs> You're my cash cow in English language, right? 
And we see this earlier. And this is what's really going on here with Potiphar. Verse three, it's amazing. His master saw that the Lord was with him, that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. Joseph's character his integrity, his work ethic had such a sanctifying effect on Potiphar that he could not ignore that Joseph was different and that that difference was the God who he served and the God who he worshiped. So Potiphar was essentially forced to acknowledge the reality of Jehovah, the supremacy of Jehovah over the 2,000 gods that his culture worshiped all because of the way Joseph trusted and lived his life. 1,800 years later, the Apostle Paul is going to be writing to a group of slaves along the same lines, and he's exhorting them to live in a similar manner. And in that exhortation, I think we find the spiritual dynamic that was at work in Joseph's life. We also find in that exhortation the gospel motivator that we need if we're going to live by faith in the same manner. Ephesians chapter 6 verse 5 says, Slaves, obey your earthly masters with deep respect and fear. Serve them sincerely as you would serve Christ. Let me stop right here for a moment. The cynic and the skeptic of our culture point to verses like this and say, this is why I can't embrace Christianity because Christianity is pro-slavery. What that, what that uh, disregards is the other passages where Paul tells slaves that if they are able to obtain their freedom in a peaceful manner that does not dishonor Christ, then by all means do so. For it's better to be free than to be a slave. But but Paul's concern and the apostles' concern and what should be our concern, first and foremost, was not our personal freedom or our personal comfort. The first concern was the kingdom of God. And so Paul rightly understands that the, the worst thing for this fledgling church as it launches into the world is to carry out a slave revolt which happens to be put down pretty violently in the Roman Empire. Everybody gets killed, right? And so instead, he gives some very practical instructions that pertain to us too. Just, we're not slaves to a master, but we work for companies, and sometimes it feels like slavery, doesn't it? Right? He says, try to please them all the time, not just when they are watching you, as slaves of Christ, do the will of God with all your heart. Work with enthusiasm as though you were working for the Lord rather than for people. The, the gospel motivator behind living like this is that we aren't serving the master. We are not ultimately working for our boss and trying to gain credit for him and glorify him. Who we're working for is the Lord Jesus Christ. And whether you're a slave like Joseph in Egypt or like, you know, uh, Philemon or Onesimus and Philemon and that story in the New Testament, the admonition is to recognize that our master is not a human being. Our master is the Lord Jesus Christ. And so when we work and when we serve, we are to do it as if we're working and serving Jesus. And this, this produces incredible results, especially for those of us Christians when we recognize that we are ambassadors for Christ. 
We're representing Jesus to this world. And one of the simplest and most effective ways that we help others to see him is in the sanctifying influence that we have in our surroundings. When we bring Jesus practically to our work, to our careers. What does that look like? Well, at our careers, we're going to be people who are characterized by, by diligence, and hard work, and expertise. And you know, there's, there's, there's nothing sanctifying about mediocrity, right? But when we work for someone, we, we attempt to be the very best employee that we can possibly be to honor that boss, that company, and all of that expertise and diligence is continually wrapped in integrity. That's the kind of worker that ultimately demonstrates Christ to even a boss who does not believe in him. Or how about our personal relationships? It is, it is love and unconditional acceptance wrapped in sacrifice where we serve others. Or perhaps in our community, it is mercy and working for and extending mercy to those in need or, or pursuing justice in our community for those who are are victims of, of different crimes. And we do all of this and it's wrapped in compassion that comes from the Lord Jesus Christ. With this aspect of, of what's happening with Joseph here and Potiphar, I'm reminded of the gospels where we read this about Jesus, that he increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. Isn't it interesting in the scriptures and the New Testament that, that Jesus, people wanted to be with Jesus. Uh, the only people who rejected Jesus were the religious elite who thought that they were, you know, all that and so much better than Jesus. Other than that, the downtrodden, the hurting, the common person, the sinner who knew he was a sinner, and people reminded him constantly that he was a sinner. Uh, these people always wanted to be with Jesus. They wanted to hang out with Jesus. They invited Jesus to their parties and Jesus went and he partied with them. Isn't that interesting? How different is it in our country today? You know, our country, our nation has grown very cynical and skeptical towards all things religious. Of course, anything that has to do, it seems like, with Christ and with Christianity. How do we break through that shell? How do we break through that skepticism and that cynicism in such a way that unbelievers are, are forced to at least acknowledge that there is something about Jesus and about people who worship Jesus that, you know, that, that this is good. We, we need this in our community. I would contend that it's by living out the gospel, by seeking the good of the city and the company and the neighborhood where God has planted us. It happens when we serve Jesus by bringing him and gospel restoration to people's deepest needs and to our broken world. That's how it happens. It happens when deacons and small groups go down to a school and give up their Saturdays and they sweat and they serve to make a school more beautiful and to encourage teachers. It happens at work when a coworker goes through a difficult time and and you take them to lunch and 
genuinely seek to know what's going on and how can you support them and pray for them and you minister to them, not with no expectations of, will they come to church on Sunday? Just because you care for them. This is how it happens. So regardless of our circumstances, right? God is with us. And he's working out his divine plan for us. Secondly, God will bless others and he'll glorify himself through people who live by faith. One final application this morning. When we live by faith, God becomes more real and more important than anything or anyone else in our lives. This is what happens. Doesn't happen instantly, but that's where it ends up. Now, Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. In other words, Joseph was a hunk, right? And after a time, his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, lie with me. But he refused and said to his master's wife, behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house. And he's put everything that he has in my charge. He is not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except you, because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? So Joseph and David, they are two of only four people who are ever described in the Bible as being handsome in form and appearance. One of the other people is Joseph's mother, Rachel. So I guess he had good genes, right? When you think about that, that, that two of the men described like this are Joseph and David. You um, immediately can't help but see some parallels here, right, in their lives. Both of them face a time of extreme sexual temptation. You know, I think all of us, you can't help but admire Joseph. I mean, she, she throws, himself, throws herself at his feet, right? And not once, but several times. And, and she finagles ways to where they could have an affair and it not be found out by the other servants or by Potiphar. And yet every time Joseph rejects her all the way to the point of finally running out of the room when she begins to grab him and forcefully engage him in a sexual affair. You can't help but admire the guy for having that level of resistance to this kind of temptation. And, and he can't help but be a little irritated that he's charged with rape and imprisoned falsely after doing the right thing. That's not how it's supposed to work out, right? And at the same time, you think of David and the devastation that occurred in his life and in the nation due to his sexual affair with Bathsheba and I think any of us who are bothered by that should be. I mean, when you look at David, I mean, here's David. He's, he's listed in the hall of fame of faith. He's this great man of God who God uses in such a way. He's this hero of the faith. And if he can succumb to temptation, what does that say, you know, about our chances of withstanding an attack by Satan? These two different outcomes from two men of God, two who were known to walk by faith. One who honors God when the temptation hits, one who does not. Why the difference? There's a lot that could be said about this, but I think because of, you know, 
where we are right now and knowing that, you know, we're running out of time, I decided to shorten it to a simple statement from Dietrich Bonhoeffer. You know who Dietrich Bonhoeffer is? Most of us do, I think. He was the German Lutheran pastor who was well-respected in America and throughout Europe. He resisted the Nazi regime. He preached against it. He worked against it. He ultimately participated in the assassination attempt on Adolf Hitler, and he was executed shortly, a few days before the war ended. Most of us who, who know his life, we probably have read his really classic book called The Cost of Discipleship, you know? It's a great book. But for the purposes of this passage and this subject, it's another little book that he wrote that I actually find to be easier to digest and maybe even more practical than The Cost of Discipleship. It's just a short, small book, and the name of it is Temptation. And it's a very honest book where Dietrich Onhoffer is not hiding from the fact that like all of us, he is tempted continually to sin. And one of the things that he says in here, I think it helps us to understand why David succumbed, why Joseph did not. Here's what he writes. He says, in our members, there is a slumbering inclination, advance the slide please, there is a slumbering inclination toward desire, which is both sudden and fierce. With irresistible power, desire seizes mastery over the flesh. All at once, a secret smoldering fire is kindled, and the flesh burns and is inflamed. It makes no difference whether it is a sexual desire, or ambition, or vanity, or desire for revenge, or love of fame, or power, or greed for money. At this moment, God is quite unreal to us. And the only desire for the creature is real. And only desire for the creature is real. Satan does not fill us with hatred of God, but with forgetfulness of God. Read that sentence aloud with me. It's profound, right? Ready? Here we go. Satan does not fill us with hatred of God, but with forgetfulness of God. The lust thus aroused envelops the mind and will of man in deepest darkness, the powers of clear discrimination and of decision are taken from us. It is here that everything in me rises up against the word of God. Joshua was tempted by Satan through Potiphar's wife. He withstood that temptation. He did not sin against his fellow man and against God because ultimately I think he understood what sin actually is. We, we forget what sin is. We, we sometimes think that it's a momentary mistake or a, a personal foible. Sin is not simply a momentary mistake or a minor failing. Sin means that I am choosing myself over someone else and ultimately God. Sin means that I value myself and my desires over God and his desires. Sin means that I reject the creator and turn to the creation to fulfill whatever it is I think that I need. Sin is willfully rejecting and ignoring God and the price that has been paid for my salvation. That's what sin is. Why does this happen? I think Bonhoeffer is right. At that moment in time, we willfully 
forget who God is, what Christ has done for us, and that he is our Lord and our master. So what's the solution to this? It's, I think we look to Jesus. We see two times in Jesus's life where he is greatly tempted, right? In the Garden of Gethsemane, it's the temptation to forego the cross. In, in the desert, for 40 days, Satan comes to him and tempts him to not accept the, the calling on his life to be the Messiah, but to, but to live a life of ease and to have a good human life. In both of these instances, how, what you see in Jesus is what must be here for us. He turns to God. He engages with God. He doesn't forget God and run from God. He engages with God. He, he throws himself to God in prayer, and on his face, he cries out to God for strength and for assistance and for power and comfort. To, to Satan, when he's tempted in the desert, again, he doesn't turn and forget God. He quotes God's word to Satan for power to withstand these temptations. So there's a lesson here for us that we see in Jesus. And when we are tempted, if we rely upon ourselves, we will quickly forget God and we will serve ourselves and indulge our own desires. But when we turn to God, when we pray, when we allow the Holy Spirit within us to use the sword of the Spirit, the Scriptures, to fight back against that temptation, to preach to ourselves the gospel of God's Word, we are in reminded who God is. We're reminded how precious our Savior is. We're strengthened so that we can withstand and, if necessary, flee even Potiphar's wife at the time of temptation. Lord Jesus, this week, we will surely be tempted in different ways. May you make yourself vivid and real to all of us. May we not forget who you are in that momentary temptation. May we not reject what you have done for us and instead choose ourselves. Lord Jesus, may we remember that you are our sovereign Lord and our service to you and our relationship with you is what you work through to mature us, to build us up, and to draw others similar to Potiphar to yourself and to your kingdom. Would you use us in this way this week? And Lord, as a church, would you make us a church that when people look at us in our community, they do not see a, a beautiful building that we will build one day. They do not see a bunch of programming. Instead, they will see you and smell the aroma of the gospel. We ask these things for your glory, Jesus, so that you may use us to bring our brothers and sisters in Palm Bay into your kingdom. In your name we ask these things. Amen.